will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then Matthew 21 Verse 18 to 22. Matthew 21, verse 18 to 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And may God indeed bless to us these readings from his holy word. Amen. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn now to study your holy word, Father, give us in great measure your Holy Spirit. Stir up the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We thank you and praise you, Father, that when Jesus on that day of Pentecost poured out the Spirit upon the church, upon all those believers gathered together. This was his gift to the church. So we thank you for the Spirit, and we thank you that your Spirit works amongst us even now. And we pray that as we read your Word, as we study it, as we meditate upon it, that your Spirit would guide us into the truth and keep us from error. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you would have noticed from the... um, Uh, the bulletin, the order of service sheet, that the topic of my talk this morning is change the world, pray like your life depended on it. Now I'm sure when some people see the title change the world, they're thinking, yes, at long last, we're going to see something practical, we're going to take action, we're going to go to parliament and stand in the gallery and shout phrases at them and saying, you know, we want to return to Christian values. We're going to march down the street and we're going to have placards in big letters so that the television cameras can pick them up and show them around the world. We're going to do some action. Well, and then you saw the rest of the heading, the title, and you're thinking, oh, no. He's going to talk about prayer. That surely is a last resort. What a disappointment. And you perhaps are thinking, talk about sticking your proverbial head in the proverbial sand like a proverbial ostrich. Well, I'm sorry if you're disappointed, but um, I'm not sorry for directing your attention to the topic of prayer. If you want to change the world, and I dare say you all do, 
then prayer is an absolute essential. It must be right at the beginning of any strategies or any plans that we think up. It's got to be at the beginning. Now, there are two minor reasons why I believe this is so important, so we'll just get them out of the way first. The first minor reason is that the Bible teaches us that the fight is never merely against human institutions. Paul makes that so clear, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities in high places. We wrestle against the wiles of Satan, who seeks to, to demolish and to detract from the work of God in any way he can. And if he can use our politicians, our parliaments, our legal system, our education system, if he can use any of these to undermine the teaching about Almighty God, then he will do that. So we've got to to remember that we are not fighting just against human institutions. It is a spiritual battle. And it has always been a spiritual battle. And it's when the church has forgotten that it is a spiritual battle that she has done great ill. Now, I know it's very popular these days to think that the church has got to put into place modern business models if she is to change the world. And I guess we would all agree that there are some things about the church that are out of date that need to be changed. But if we start to think that we can change the world merely by adopting modern business principles, then we are hopelessly wrong. We'll never change the world in that way. Changing the world has always been a spiritual battle. And the first thing required of those who are engaging in this spiritual battle is strength from God and insight from God. And you can only get this if you're a person of great prayer, persevering prayer. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the church history confirms that truth. When the church has forgotten her spiritual calling and forgotten that ultimately her her battle is against spiritual forces, not institutions, then she has resorted to the methods of the world and evil and trouble have come. Now you've all heard about the Crusades that started in the year about 1100 AD and continued for a few hundred years after that. And they thought, we're doing a great thing, a godly thing. We're going to the Middle East. We're going to take back the holy places of Israel from the Muslim. We're going to win them back. And armies went there. And there were great battles. (coughs) And great evil was done. In the name of Jesus Christ and his church... And to this day, the Crusades have poisoned relationships between Muslims and Christians. Then in the 15th century, the church in Spain was very concerned to ensure the purity of the church, right? Good thing. So they brought in and developed the Inquisition so that they could make sure that people who put their hands up and said, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian now, I'm a believer were genuine believers. And a man called Torquemada was one of the men who brought in this inquisition. He was the leader of it. And they used interrogation, and they used torture, and they sometimes used capital punishment 
to ensure the purity of the church. But what did it produce? It produced great evil and it caused the church and the cause of Christ to smell among people. So that's why I say that when we're considering what is required to change the world, that prayer has got to be our first consideration. So I'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16. It's a verse that we read out earlier, which says, let me just remind you, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Now, the first thing we need to get clear is the background to this verse. It's made very clear in this chapter, in parts that we did not read, that the great problem with the people of Israel and their inability to bring about godly change in the world is them. Look at the descriptions that are given earlier in this chapter. In verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. You see, the problem was them. Not the rest of the world, but it was them. Then in verse 4, it says, No one enters suit justly. In other words, no one goes to a law court with justice in their minds. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Now, those things, of course, were true of the ancient Israelites. But are they not true of us today? You would recall um, just not too long ago a royal commission that looked into the institutional treatment of children and young people, and they discovered that there was hardly a Christian denomination in Australia that had not turned a blind eye to the abuse of children in their care. Isn't that shocking? They have allowed injustice to fester and breed. It is very fashionable these days to take someone to court claiming some sort of discrimination or some sort of uh, violence towards you. And in cases, it's found to be just completely empty. But people think, it's okay, I can use the system to get some recompense. I'll come out of it all right. You see, the same problem that the people of Israel were having so long ago using the legal system for their own ends. Then in verse 15, we see where it says, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So the person who says, No, I'm not having any of this. I am departing from evil. I'm going to live a life as God wants it. That person makes himself a prey. And of course, this is what has happened in Australia. The person who wants to follow the truth and uphold the truth ends up being harassed for his or her trouble. I'm sure that you all know of the Reverend Fred Nile, who for decades, mostly in New South Wales and in New South Wales Parliament, has stood up for Christian values and Christian morals. 
and he has been laughed at. He's been despised. He's had cartoons drawn of him that show him out to be a funny figure. But he has continued on to do the work that he believes God has drawn him to do. Some of you are aware of Australian Christian Lobby. Again, a group desirous of promoting Christian values, standing firm for Christian values and trying to turn Australian society back to the ways of God. They've had their offices vandalised, they've had things smashed, they've had paint drawn all over their offices. So those who depart from evil make themselves a prey. So if you're going to stand up for right and for God, then this is what we've got to realise could happen. That's the sort of society that Isaiah was living in and it's the sort of society that we are living in. So what are we to do about it? Which brings us to our second point. The Lord looks around him at his people and he discovers there is no man who sees the obvious answer and the Lord wonders. There's no one to intercede, no one to pray. No one to ask of me what is needful in this day and age. So that is the obvious answer. And no one bothers to do the obvious thing. Why should God be stunned with such wonderment? The answer is, of course, that God has made it so clear to his people from time immemorial that they were only to ask and he would hear and he would answer them. This is the first step for them to take. It's an obvious one. When the people of Israel were groaning under slavery in Egypt and some started to lift up their, their hearts to God in prayer, what do we read? We read where God said to them, I have heard, I have seen, I have come down to intervene for their sakes. The Israelites desperately wanted to change the world. The first step was to ask, to intercede with God. When God was leading the people of Israel through the wilderness, they had only to ask for water or for food or for deliverance from an enemy and the Lord heard them and answered them over and over again. There are so many promises within Holy Scripture of God's desire to hear prayer and to answer prayer, to hear, to act. Psalm 34, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Matthew 7, one of the verses we read, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then in Matthew 21, Jesus says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And I'm sure that you can think of other passages in the Bible that teach the same thing, that God is willing to answer prayer, to hear the prayers of his people and to, to work and to intervene on their behalf. And I'm sure that you can understand why God looked about him in the time of Isaiah and wondered, why is there no one to intercede? Why is there no one to pray when he was so ready and willing to answer? 
Is that something that the Lord might say of us? We are confronted with evil on every side and injustice. Will we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, what can you expect? It's an evil world. When the Lord wants us to pray and to intercede, and he will hear and he will answer. But we come to the third point and the last point. We must never, ever think that the Lord can do nothing if we don't pray. That's not true. It doesn't follow. We must never think that we have some sort of veto on God's plans. We must never think that if we don't do something about the evil in the world that God just has to put up with it. We mustn't think that. Not at all. This earth belongs to God and all that is in it. Yes, it is true that God ordinarily uses his church to proclaim his gospel and to spread his gospel. God ordinarily uses his people to rise up against evil and proclaim the truth and to bring about justice, but he is not hamstrung if they will not play their part. We must remember that. And that comes out so clearly to us in the verse that we're looking at. He wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. You see, God is not vetoed by the fact that we do not obey and we do not pray. We must never think that. Our verse teaches that God took action himself. His own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. God will not be mocked. Evil will never triumph over God. God will have his way. And if it will not come by the faithfulness of his people and their diligent prayers, then God has other ways. Remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus when he was entering into Jerusalem and he was riding on that donkey. And they said to Jesus, Tell your disciples to stop shouting out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they felt it was wrong. Jesus was no king. It was wrong. What did Jesus say to them? He said, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. Because the very stones will recognise that this is the God of all the universe, the God of creation, who was on this donkey riding into Jerusalem. So yes, you stop their mouths, stop people calling out, but the stones will call out because they can't help it. We must never ever think that we in this church building here are essential to God. We might say, Well, after all, you know, there are not so many people in Australia who follow God, so, you know, we're pretty important. In a sense, we are, because God has called us through his son, Jesus Christ. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has made us his people, fellow citizens. Yes, in a sense, we're important, but if we think that that importance means that God is vetoed in what he wants to do if we don't take some sort of action, then we're wrong then. We certainly are. It's a very dangerous thing to think that we are indispensable to God. Just think of these examples. 
because of the constant disobedience of the people of Israel, God took the gospel to the Gentiles. And instead of the message of salvation being tied up within a group of people, the Israelites, who were meant to be a light to all the nations, God said, well, okay, Paul, you go to the Gentiles. And Paul went through all the Mediterranean, well, not all of it, most of the Mediterranean preaching the gospel. And Greeks believed, and those in Asia Minor believed. People who were nothing to do with the Israelites believed. It's very interesting that it is the Anglican churches of Africa who are calling the Anglican churches of the West to account over their, their laxity in allowing homosexual couples to be pastors and priests within the Anglican church. It's the, the younger Anglican churches of Africa that are saying, this is not right, and you call yourself Anglican. Because of the lack of, of uh, interest in evangelism to Jewish people, there are people from Hong Kong, right now this is, this is absolutely true, people from Hong Kong who have felt the call to go to the original people of God and they have gone to the United Kingdom, to the big cities of the United Kingdom and they are going and visiting Jewish people and sharing the gospel with them. And that is happening this very day. You see, you cannot veto God. If one group will not be obedient, then God has another group that he will raise up. So we need to remember these words. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And that, of course, is the first verse of chapter 59 in Isaiah. So we need to bring this to an end. We need to finish. We've seen three things. Firstly, we saw that society in Isaiah's time was rife with injustice and evil, very much like ours today in Australia. Secondly, we have seen that what God expected of his people, first of all, the obvious thing, was prayer and intercession. And they weren't doing it. And thirdly, we have seen that God is not dependent on us. He can bring his own salvation and uphold righteousness himself. He can use other ways if he wants to. So how are we to finish? My friends, I'm sure that you all want to change the world. To overcome evil, to promote righteousness, we all want to do that. But there's one thing that we must never, ever forget. You must pray like your life depends upon it. Because it does. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for your goodness to us. You have revealed your word to us. We have it here. And we're able to read it and study it. Father, this is an immense privilege. And we thank you and praise you for it. And we ask now, Father, that it might not be true of us as it was in the time of Isaiah, that the Lord looked down and there was no one, no one to pray, no one to intercede. Father, may it never be true of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.